Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 79. This show is entitled The Secret Stones of the Sahara. And I'd like to dedicate today's show to Joe Vance and his wife Courtney and thank them very much for their assistance in the production of my podcasts. Your help is greatly appreciated. And I'd like to do our first story today from the westerndigs.org website. Now this article has been making its rounds on the internet and it's quite an important story. The first fossil of a blood-filled mosquito has been discovered. And I think it's the possibilities that are making this story so exciting. And this one is written by Blake DePastino. Through a series of events that scientists themselves admit was extremely improbable, a mosquito that feasted on the blood of Eocene animals some 46 million years ago managed to die and become trapped in sediment, but remain intact all while carrying a belly full of blood, its last meal. The result, recently discovered in some oil shale from northwestern Montana, is the first fossil of a mosquito found still engorged with ancient blood. The discovery was announced in this week's issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. According to the lead researcher of the study, Smithsonian Institution paleontologist Dale Greenwalt, this is only the fifth instance of blood eating by any insect to be revealed in the fossil record and it's the first in a mosquito with traces of blood that his team calls incontrovertible. Most fossils of blood-eating insects that have been found are of midges, a kind of biting fly trapped in amber, the team points out. But since mosquitoes typically prefer open habitats near water, rather than forests full of sap-bearing trees, finding preserved remains of mosquitoes has been rare. In addition, the scientists note, not all species of mosquitoes eat blood, and even in those that do, it's only the females that partake. Given all of these factors, Greenwalt's team writes, it is not surprising that a fossil of a blood-engorged mosquito has not been described before, this despite the popular misconception of dinosaur DNA recovery from blood-engorged mosquitoes in amber popularised by the 1993 movie Jurassic Park. Since they bring that up, it's worth pointing out that the mosquito fossil dates to the Middle Eocene, some 19 million years after non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. 
Plus, DNA molecules are too complex and fragile to survive fossilization, the team says. So it's impossible to tell what kind of animal the Montana mosquito took its final meal from. But among the discoveries that this find has made possible is that other large molecules, like those large enough to denote the presence of blood, can still survive fossilization. The team decided to investigate the fossil more closely after noticing the insect's dark, distended abdomen appearing much more like a modern mosquito after drinking a big blood meal. Tests of the abdomen revealed very high levels of iron ions, a mineral in which animal blood is rich. So the team analysed the sample using mass spectroscopy to get a more precise chemical makeup of the insect's gut contents. They found telltale organic compounds that are the fingerprints of a substance called heme, the molecule that allows haemoglobin in blood to carry oxygen and that gives blood its red colour. The presence of these compounds, they say, is incontrovertible documentation of heme and therefore likely haemoglobin in the insect. In all, the scientists conclude the unique preservation of this well-fed mosquito and all of the data it has given up so far were the fortunate results of an extremely improbable event. The insect had to take a blood meal be blown to the water surface and sink to the bottom of a pond or similar lacustrine or lake-like structure to be quickly embedded in a fine anaerobic sediment, they write, all without disruption of its fragile, distended, blood-filled abdomen. From the ParanormalAbout.com website, an article by Stephen Wagner. Weird, weird rain. As I sit writing this week's feature and glance out of my home office window, it's pouring rain outside. One might say it's raining cats and dogs. Not literally, of course, but that's not to say that at times in many areas around the world that it hasn't rained things just as strange as felines and canines. Sometimes things even stranger. Weird rain is one of the more bizarre and still largely unexplained phenomena that is periodically, yet continually, reported from all corners of the globe. There have been accounts of frog rain, fish rain, squid rain, worm rain, even alligator rain. The local explanation for the odd occurrences is that a tornado or strong whirlwind picked up the animals from a shallow body of water and carried them, sometimes hundreds of miles, before dropping them on a bewildered populace. This explanation has yet to be proved, and it can't quite account for all of the documented incidents, as you'll see. Here are some of the more unusual cases a small sampling from thousands of reports over the years. 
that defy all rational explanation. Section 1. Frogs in 1873, Scientific American reported that Kansas City, Missouri was blanketed with frogs that dropped from the sky during a storm. Minneapolis, Minnesota was pelted with frogs and toads in July 1901. A news item stated, When the storm was at its highest, there appeared, as if descending directly from the sky, a huge green mass. Then followed a peculiar patter unlike that of rain or hail. When the storm abated, the people found, three inches deep and covering an area of more than four blocks, a collection of a most striking variety of frogs, so thick in some places that travel was impossible. The citizens of Naflion, a city in southern Greece, were surprised one morning in May 1981 when they awoke to find small green frogs falling from the sky. Weighing just a few ounces each, the frogs landed in trees and plopped into the streets. The Greek Meteorological Institute surmised they were picked up by a strong wind. It must have been a very strong wind indeed. The frog species was native to North Africa. In 1995, reports 14 times online, Nellie Straw of Sheffield, England, was driving through Scotland on holiday with her family when they encountered a severe storm. Along with the heavy rain, however, hundreds of frogs suddenly pelted her car. Fish. A powerful whirlwind might explain a rain of small fish, but it cannot account for the ones that fell on a village in India. As many as 10 people reported picking up fish that weighed as much as 8 pounds that had come crashing down on them. In February 1861, folks in many areas of Singapore reported a rain of fish following an earthquake. How could the two possibly correlate? Golfers dread gathering clouds and rain that might ruin their game. But imagine their consternation of several duffers in Bournemouth, England in 1948 who received a shower of herring. Priests often pray for blessings from above, but fish? In 1996, Father Leonard Bourne was dashing through a downpour across a courtyard in North Sydney, Australia, when a large fish fell from the sky and landed on his shoulder. The priest nearly caught it as it slid down his chest but it squirmed away, fell to the flooded ground, and swam away. These things don't always happen in heavy rain. In 1989 in Ipswich, Australia, Harold and Deegan's front lawn was covered with about 800 sardines that rained from above during a light shower. This report is most unusual. In an otherwise clear sky, in Chilichi, Alabama in 1956, a woman and her husband watched as a small dark cloud formed in the sky. When it was overhead, the cloud released its contents. Rain, catfish, bass and brim, all of the fish alive. The dark cloud had turned to white, then dispersed. Flesh and blood.
In 1890, Popular Science News reported that blood rained down on Messinati, Calabria in Italy. Birds' blood. It was speculated that the birds were somehow torn apart by violent winds, although there were no such winds at the time, and no other parts of the bird came down, just blood. Jay Hudson's farm in Los Nitos Township, California, endured a rain of flesh and blood for three minutes in 1869. The grisly fall covered several acres. The American Journal of Science confirmed a shower of blood, fat and muscle tissue that fell on a tobacco farm near Lebanon, Tennessee in August 1841. Field workers who actually experienced this weird shower said they heard a rattling noise and saw drops of blood, as they supposed fell from a red cloud which was flying over. Miscellaneous events. In 1881, a thunderstorm in Worcester, England, brought down tons of periwinkles and hermit crabs. In November 1996, a town in southern Tasmania was slimed. Several residents woke up on a Sunday morning after a night of violent thunderstorms to find a strange, white, clear, jelly-like substance on their property. Apparently it had rained either fish eggs or baby jellyfish. A Korean fisherman trolling off the coast of the Falkland Islands was knocked unconscious by a single frozen squid that fell from the sky and conked him on the head. In July 2001, a red rain fell on Kerala, India. At first it was thought that a meteor was responsible for the strange coloured rain, but an analysis showed that the water was filled with fungal spores. Still, where did all of those red spores come from to be rained down in such concentration? From about 1982 to 1986, kernels of corn have rained down on several houses in Evans, Colorado. Tons of it, according to Gary Bryan, one of the residents. Oddly, there were no cornfields in the area that might account for the phenomenon. In August 2001, the Wichita, Kansas area experienced an unexplained rain of corn husks. The news report stated that thousands of dried corn leaves fell over East Wichita, from about Central Avenue to 37th Street North, along Woodlawn Boulevard and on East, each about 20 to 30 inches long. In 1877, several one-foot alligators fell on J.L. Smith's farm in South Carolina. They landed unharmed and started crawling around, reported the New York Times. Perhaps the most bizarre report is one that unfortunately cannot be confirmed. It may be just the stuff of urban legend, but it's so weird and so amusing that it had to be included. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not it's true. Sometime around 1990, a Japanese fishing boat was sunk in the Sea of Okotsk off the eastern coast of Siberia by a falling cow. When the crew of the wrecked ship were fished from the water, they told authorities that they had seen several cows falling from the sky and that one of them crashed straight through the deck and hull. At first, the story goes, the fishermen were arrested for trying to perpetrate an insurance fraud, but were released when their story was verified. 
It seems that a Russian transport plane carrying stolen cattle was flying overhead. When the movement of the herd within the plane threw it off balance, the plane's crew, to avoid crashing, opened the loading bay at the tail of the aircraft and drove them out to fall into the water below. True story or hoax? One investigation traced the story back to a Russian television comedy series. Personally, I think this story is the most preposterous. Wait a minute. I think I just saw something large and black and white fall past my window. Is that mooing I hear? Ever wondered why some planes emit long, lingering clouds of white vapour, while others pass overhead without leaving a trace? From the www.telegraph.co.uk website, chemtrails and other aviation conspiracy theories. And this is written by Oliver Smith. The seemingly random appearance of contrails as these lines of condensation are commonly called, is considered by a small but vocal online minority to be evidence of government conspiracy. The clouds are, according to some, in fact, chemtrails, chemical or biological agents sprayed at high altitude for any number of top-secret reasons. So persistent is the chemtrail theory that US government agencies regularly receive calls from irate citizens demanding an explanation. Pernilla Hagberg, the leader of Sweden's Green Party, even raised the issue in Parliament. The trails which arouse the most suspicion are those that remain visible for a long time, dispersing into cirrus-like cloud formations, or those from multiple aircraft which form a persistent noughts and crosses style grid over a large area. So what possible reason would the world's governments have for secretly jettisoning vast quantities of chemicals into the stratosphere? The conspiracy theory took root in the 90s with the publication of a US Air Force research paper about weather modification. The ability to change the weather isn't mere pie in the sky. Cloud seeding, where particles such as silver oxide are sprayed onto clouds to increase precipitation, is commonly used by drought-prone countries and was part of the Chinese government's efforts to reduce pollution ahead of the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Other proponents of the chemtrails theory say it is an attempt to control global warming while some cite far more sinister goals, such as population control and military weapons testing. 
Governments and scientific institutions have of course dismissed the theories and claim those vapour trails which persist for longer than usual or disperse to cover a wide area are just normal contrails. The variety of contrails seen in the sky is due to atmospheric conditions and altitude, they say, while grid-like contrails are merely a result of the large number of planes that travel along the same well-worn flight lanes. Patrick Smith, the pilot, also dismisses the theory in his book about air travel, Cockpit Confidential. Contrails are formed when humid jet exhaust condenses into ice crystals in the cold, dry upper-level air. It's not unlike a fog that results when you exhale on a cold day, he says. Contrails are clouds, you could say. Water vapour, strange as it might sound, is a byproduct of the combustion within jet engines, which is where the humidity comes from. Whether a contrail forms is contingent on altitude and the ambient atmospheric makeup, mainly temperature and something known as vapour pressure. A report by the Federal Aviation Administration, the US National Aviation Authority, said that aircraft engines emit water vapour, carbon dioxide, small amounts of nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, sulphur gases and soot and metal particles formed by the high pressure combustion of jet fuel during flight. Of these emittents, only water vapour is necessary for contrail formation. If the humidity is high, greater than that needed for ice condensation to occur, the contrail will be persistent. Newly formed ice particles will continue to grow in size by taking water from the surrounding atmosphere. The resulting line-shaped contrails extend for large distances behind an aircraft. Persistent contrails can last for hours while growing to several kilometres in width and two to four hundred metres in height. Contrails spread because of air turbulence created by the passage of aircraft. Differences in wind speed along the flight track and possibly through effects of solar heating. It concluded that persistent contrails pose no direct threat to public health, but added contrail cloudiness might contribute to human-induced climate change. So while chemtrails are widely considered a myth, Contrails themselves may actually be harming us by contributing to global warming. There are a couple of other interesting facts about contrails. Military aircraft will sometimes fly at a particular altitude to avoid producing them and therefore evade detection. Also, when a plane is travelling towards an observer on the ground, it may emit a contrail that appears to be vertical. In November 2010, the Pentagon was left baffled by what was reported to be a mystery missile launch off the coast of California. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there's actually a video of it as well. But eventually concluded that it was probably an aircraft contrail. And we also have some other aviation-related conspiracy theories to go with this article. Denver Airport. Denver International Airport has found itself under intense scrutiny from conspiracy theorists since it opened in 1995. 
Philip Schneider, a structural engineer turned whistleblower who died in mysterious circumstances in 1996, claimed that beneath the airport lies a vast underground facility, which then prompted suggestions that the airport is actually hiding a secret military base or even a concentration camp. And why, ask conspiracy theorists, do the runways form the shape of a swastika? Even the artwork on display has fallen under the spotlight. Four bizarre murals of rather disturbing and apocalyptic scenes can be found inside the main terminal, which conspiracy theorists speculate depicts the true agenda of the New World Order. Meanwhile, a stone plaque above the terminal's entrance features a square and compass a traditional Masonic symbol, and a dedication to the New World Airport Commission. No such organisation officially exists. The Bermuda Triangle. The roughly triangular area bounded by Miami, Bermuda and Puerto Rico is where dozens of aircraft and ships have said to have vanished under unusual circumstances, with the disappearances attributed to paranormal or extraterrestrial activity. Notable incidents include the disappearance of Flight 19, a US Navy bomber, on December 5, 1945, as well as the aircraft sent to search for it, that of a Douglas DC-3 aircraft with 32 people on board in 1948, and a mid-air collision between two US Air Force planes in 1963. The Wright Brothers some believe the Wright brothers did not in fact build the world's first successful aeroplane. German-born Gustav Whitehead should get the credit, they say, as evidence suggests he took to the sky two years earlier. They add that US institutions will not accept Whitehead's role in the birth of aviation because of their indebtedness to the Wright's legacy a 1948 contract between the estate of Orville Wright and the Smithsonian Museum means it's legally obliged to call the Wright brothers the first to fly. Amelia Earhart The pioneering aviator Amelia Earhart vanished over the Pacific Ocean in 1937 while attempting to circumnavigate the globe. Various reasons have been given for her disappearance, some claim she was a spy and that she was shot down and captured by Japanese forces. Some believe she faked her own death and a few even claim she was abducted by aliens. Earlier this year, researchers claimed they had discovered remnants of her aircraft using sonar readings. And finally, the Star Alliance. Founded in 1997, the Star Alliance is a group of 28 airlines around the world that aims to improve the travel experience for millions of flyers and reduce negative environmental impact. Not so claim a small online minority who believe that the group is a shady cartel intent on self-aggrandizing and Machiavellian doctrines.
And now to a selection of shorter stories, and some of these have photographs or videos associated with them and would be worth a trip to the show notes at the www.origins.info website and the Mysteries Abound show notes link and the link to episode 79. The first comes from the epochtimes.com website and it's written by Jack Phillips and this one has four photos associated with it. A giant squid washes up on a Cantabria beach in Spain. A giant squid washed up on a Spanish beach in Cantabria earlier this week and was photographed according to local reports. A Spanish newspaper reported that the squid, which was found at the La Arena beach, measured at around 30 feet in length and with tentacles extended weighed some 400 pounds. The paper said the squid is a member of the Archituchus duck species. Archituchus ducks are the largest invertebrates in the world, but are rarely seen as they swim at depths of 1,000 to 3,000 feet. The squid has been sent to the Maritime Museum of Cantabria, reported the Olive Press. Scientists will have to decide on whether to display or dissect the animal. Gerardo Garcia Castillo, the head of the museum, told Merco Press, Dimensions will inspire respect, close to a record, but still short of other stranded cephalopods washed ashore in other parts of the Cantabrian Sea. The animal died at sea and ocean currents brought it to the coast, Toledo said, according to Grind TV. The squid was in good condition, except one tentacle had been broken. In 2012, as Live Science points out, Tsunemi Kubodera of the Japan's National Science Museum in Tokyo captured the first live footage of a giant squid in its natural deep-sea habitat. And from the life.time.com website, Hell on Wheels, Life with Mutant Bicycles. Every year, more and more people in the United States are clambering aboard their beloved bicycles and blithely pedalling into a brighter, cleaner, healthier tomorrow. Or losing their balance and wiping out and maiming themselves. Either way, they're getting exercise. But back in 1948, a number of inspired amateur craftsmen, not content with riding mundane, conventional bicycles, took their enthusiasm to another unlikely level and, well, let's let life tell it, in the words the magazine used in its December 27, 1948 issue. To Webster, a bicycle is a light vehicle having two wheels, one behind the other. Such a definition theoretically describes the contraptions seen in the article, but fails to do justice to the imagination of the Chicago chapter of the National Bicycle Dealers Association. By artfully applying welders' torches to metal tubing, the chapter's members transform ordinary utilitarian bicycles into travelling monstrosities. By far the most outlandish ideas have come from the Steinloff family who produced from their bicycle repair shop most of the oddities shown in the article. They are hazardous. Generally, at least one member of the clan is found to be in hospital. Here, Life.com offers a selection of photos of these preposterous creations from six long decades ago. 
mechanistic marvels that belie the famous old saying, which we just made up, there's no such thing as a useless bicycle. And if you visit the show notes, there are 15 of these amazing bicycles. Maybe the strangest is the one with the square wheels. Anyway, go to the show notes, have a look. And the following story is one of those that, how come these things never happen to me? From the news.sky.com website. A French climber has uncovered a treasure trove of jewels worth 246,000 euros while climbing a glacier off Mont Blanc in the Alps. A box of emeralds, rubies and sapphires were discovered inside the wreckage of a plane that crashed into the mountain half a century ago. French police praised the climber's honesty after he immediately reported the haul. This was an honest young man who very quickly realised that they belonged to someone who died on the glacier, said local gendarme chief Sylvain Merley. He could have kept them, but he preferred to give them to the police. Police said the jewels were found earlier this month in a tin about the size of a shoebox, and several were inside small bags labelled Made in India. French authorities are in the process of contacting their Indian counterparts to determine the jewels' rightful owners. If unclaimed, the climber could inherit the jewellery in accordance with French law. Two Air India planes crashed into Mont Blanc in 1950 and 1966 and climbers frequently find debris and other remains from the aircraft. Last year, the Indian government claimed a bag of diplomatic mail found near the wreckage of the Boeing 707 Malabar Princess that crashed on the southwest face of the mountain on January 24, 1966. Gendarme Chief Murley said, Things come up from the glaciers. They're always moving. Although this may not actually fit technically into a mystery or paranormal type story, I found this one quite fascinating. From the www.mymodernmet.com website. Mesmerising translucent waves from 19th century paintings. And you've got to have a look at these. These paintings are amazing and the artwork is just incredible. The late 19th century Armenian-Russian painter Ivan Kostanovich Ivesvosky created some truly spectacular paintings of seascapes that capture the beautiful shimmering essence of the tumultuous waters. The marine artist gained recognition for his impeccable ability to recreate the expressive quality of oceans with over half of his 6,000 plus paintings from his lifetime being devoted to the subject. What separates his seascape paintings from others is his ability to replicate both the intensity and motion as well as the translucency and texture. His energetic waves and calm ripples are equally effective. Ivazovsky also plays with colours, simulating the effects of sunlight filtering through the waters to present an ethereal quality that imitates a sort of magical realism. 
There's something absolutely stunning about the painter's ability to skillfully emulate the emotional connection to the coastal scenes that translates centuries later. And if you visit the show notes, there's quite a number of these paintings and they're just beautiful. Like they said, the translucency and the realism of the waves is just amazing. And finally, in this set of stories, another one with a marine-type theme. From the www.telegraph.co.uk website, Waves more than 800 feet tall have been found to form and break underwater in parts of the deep ocean. And this is an article by Richard Gray. They would be the ultimate in big wave surfing. Scientists have discovered waves that rise up to be taller than some skyscrapers. However, rather than being found on sun-kissed beaches in exotic locations around the world, these waves are three miles high beneath the surface of the ocean. Researchers found the waves, which are also known as internal waves, form at the boundary between two layers of water with different densities in a deep ocean trench in the southern Pacific Ocean. The waves rise up due to ridges on the ocean floor of a narrow channel to the northwest of Samoa that forces cold, saltier water to rise up into the warmer water above. These form 800-foot waves that rear up and then plunge hundreds of feet down into the dense water on the other side of the sill. However, each wave takes about an hour to break. So while it might never be possible for surfers to ride these enormous waves, the scientists say these waves play an important role for mixing nutrients in the ocean. Professor Matthew Alford, an oceanographer at the University of Washington, who led an expedition to the channel known as the Samoan Passage, said, Oceanographers used to talk about the so-called dark mixing problem, where they knew that there should be a certain amount of turbulence in the deep ocean, and yet every time they made a measurement, they observed a tenth of that. We found there are loads and loads of turbulence in the Samoan Passage, and detailed measurements show it's due to breaking waves. The layers of water form because dense cold water in Antarctica sinks into the deep Pacific Ocean and is forced through a 25-mile gap northeast of Samoa. Around 6 million cubic metres of water passes through the gap every second, around the same as 35 Amazon rivers. Dr Alford and his team lowered specially designed wave chaser instruments three miles into the seabed and took measurements over 30 hour periods of the turbulence at the boundary between the cold dense water and warmer water above. They found that as the dense bottom layer of water flows over two consecutive ridges in the Samoan Passage, it causes them to form lee waves, like air rising over a mountain. They become unstable and break, causing the dense cold water to mix with the upper layers. Professor Albert said that this helps to explain why dense cold water does not permanently pool at the bottom of the ocean. The waves may also play a role in stimulating global currents. They believe waves like this form at other locations in the Samoan Passage and elsewhere in the ocean. 
At their most powerful, some internal waves can sweep submarines off course or cause them to surface. In addition to the primary sill, other locations along the multiple interconnected channels through the Samoan Passage also have an effect on the mixing of the dense water. In fact, quite different hydraulic responses and turbulence levels are observed at seafloor features separated laterally by a few kilometres, suggesting that abyssal mixing depends sensitively on bathymetric details on small scales. Climate models are really sensitive, not only to how much turbulence there is in the deep ocean, but to where it is. The primary importance of understanding deep ocean turbulence is to get the climate models right on long timescales, Alford says. Professor Alford, who is a surfer himself, added that these deep sea waves would make for a dull surfing experience. He said it would be really boring. The waves can take an hour to break, and I think most surfers are not going to wait that long for one wave. I'm going to do three short articles from this website that I really like. It's the coolinterestingstuff.com website and it's a great website for all these unusual and mysterious things. So three short articles from there and the first being entitled Time Slip Mystery Flight into the Future. In 1935, Air Marshal Sir Victor Goddard of the British Royal Air Force had a harrowing experience in his Hawker Hart biplane. Goddard was a wing commander at the time and while on a flight from Edinburgh, Scotland to his home base in Andover, England, he decided to fly over an abandoned airfield at Drem, not far from Edinburgh. The useless airfield was overgrown with foliage. The hangars were falling apart and cows grazed where planes were once parked. Goddard then continued his flight to Andover but encountered a bizarre storm. In the high winds of the storm's strange brown-yellow clouds, he lost control of his plane which began to spiral towards the ground. Narrowly averting a crash, Goddard found that his plane was heading back towards Drem. As he approached the old airfield, the storm suddenly vanished and Goddard's plane was now flying in brilliant sunshine. This time as he flew over the Drem airfield, it looked completely different. The hangars looked like new. There were four airplanes on the ground. Three were familiar biplanes, but painted in an unfamiliar yellow. The fourth was a monoplane, which the RAF had none of in 1935. The mechanics were dressed in blue overalls, which Goddard thought odd since all RAF mechanics dressed in brown overalls. Strange too that none of the mechanics seemed to notice him fly over. Leaving the area, he again encountered the storm, but managed to make his way back to Andover. The true mystery. It wasn't until 1939 that the RAF began to paint their planes yellow. 
enlisted a monoplane of the type that Goddard saw, and the mechanic's uniforms were switched to blue. Had Goddard somehow flown four years into the future, then returned to his own time? Story number two. Mystery of the men in lead masks. There remains a case unsolved from the 1960s that reads almost like a real-life version of J.J. Abrams' pseudoscience series Fringe. It begins in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Two young men, Manuel Piero da Cruz and Miguel José Viana, both electronic technicians, were found lying dead together in the middle of a forest. Their corpses dressed in their smartest suits, with lead masks covering their faces. The cause of death was undetermined. The case for suicide or murder is still out on these two. Cruz and Viana set off on a trip to buy electronic work supplies and a new car. They were reported to have left with the money for a car and stopped by at a general store to buy a bottle of water and a raincoat on the way. The man who served them told the police that the pair looked nervous and were in a hurry, checking their watches every minute or so. Their bodies were found three days later. What's most puzzling is what they were found with at the scene. Police investigators found them in their suits and raincoats, wearing lead eye masks with no holes, the types used to protect against radiation. Two towels and notebook on the ground near their bodies. The money for the car was gone. As if the lead masks and suits weren't spooky enough, the instructions written in the notebook seemed to point to a very strange rendezvous. There, in Portuguese, were the words 1630, be at agreed place. 1830, swallow capsules, after effect, protect metals, wait for mask signal. Were Cruz and Viana scheduled to meet aliens? Or maybe even time travellers from another dimension? Toxicology reports couldn't even find out what the pills were, for as their organs had rotted away. Perhaps this truly was a case of interdimensional travelling gone wrong. Story 3. Out-of-place artefacts. 2.8 billion year old spheres. For more than three decades, miners at the Wonderstone silver mine near Ottersdale in Western Transvaal, South Africa, have been extracting out of deep rock several strange metallic spheroids. So far, at least 200 have been found. In 1979, several were closely examined by J.R. MacGyver, Professor of Geology at the University of Witzvorderstand in Johannesburg, and Geologist Professor Andreas Bischoff of the Poschestrom University. The metallic spheroids look like flattened globes, averaging 1 to 4 inches in diameter, and their exteriors are usually coloured steel blue with a reddish reflection, and embedded in the metal are tiny flecks of white fibres. They are made of nickel-steel alloy, which does not occur naturally, and is of a composition that rules out 
meteoric origin. Some have only a thin shell of a quarter of an inch thick and when broken open are found filled with a strange spongy material that disintegrates into dust on contact with the air. What makes all this very remarkable is that the spheroids were mined out of a layer of pyrophyllite rock dated both geologically and by various radioisotope dating techniques to at least 2.8 billion years old. Adding mystery to mystery, Rolf Marx, curator of the South African Klersdorp Museum, has discovered that the spheroid he has on exhibition slowly rotates on its axis by its own power while locked in its display case and free of outside vibrations. Stones which are found in rock scientists say are billions of years old and which rotate on their own axes captured the attention of Mr John Hund of Petersburg 15 years ago. While playing with the stone on a very flat surface at a restaurant one day, Hund realised it was very well balanced. He took it to the California Space Institute at the University of California to have tests done to determine just how well balanced it was. It turned out that the balance is so fine it exceeded the limit of their measuring technology and these are the guys who make gyro compasses for NASA. The stone is balanced to within one hundred thousandths of an inch from absolute perfection, explains Hund. Nobody knows what these stones are. One NASA scientist reportedly told Hund that they do not have the technology to create anything as finely balanced as this. He said the only way that either nature or human technology could create something so finely balanced would be in zero gravity. And to our feature story for this podcast, from the www.curiositas.com website, The Anedi Plateau, Secret Stones of the Sahara. And for this one, I would also recommend a visit to the show notes, because there are many, many photos accompanying this article. I'll do my best to describe it using the text, but I think visually it's a much more pleasant experience. Rising from the sands of the Great Sahara Desert, the Anedi Plateau is a revelation. Situated in the northeast of Chad and surrounded by sand on all sides, this extraordinary otherworldly place presents vista after vista of stunning rock formations. Anedi is little visited. There is nothing you could realistically call a road for many miles. The plateau is frequented only by local nomads and a handful of foreign visitors in their 4x4s. 
Yet even though the landscape resembles somewhere the crew of the Enterprise might find themselves on, on an away mission, these rocks, as you will see, hide something perhaps even more astonishing. A journey to the Anedi Plateau is not for the casual traveller or the faint-hearted. It's a four-day drive from the capital city of this land-locked country, Nurjamina. The name of the capital translates from the Arabic as a place of rest, but that is probably the last thing a visitor gets on the 100-hour journey to an eddy along dusty and potholed roads. However, the country is truly a crossroads of civilizations with over 200 linguistic and ethnic groups. Upon arrival at the Anedi Plateau, you may on occasion cross paths with nomadic camel herders. Unsurprisingly, the place is a magnet for the hardiest of the world's rock climbers, who come here to ascend the sandstone rocks, many of which are over a hundred metres high. One can only imagine the bemusement of the locals. However, even 4x4s cannot manage a lot of the terrain that you see in these pictures. Often vehicles must be left behind, yet after trekking for several hours the rewards are manifold. The rock formations sweep towards the sky in a multitude of incredible shapes and sizes. It looks barren and devoid of life, but nature always seems to find a way. It is easy to forget that the plateau is surrounded by sand until you see the Sahara. Even in the middle of the harsh, dry desert, lush gelters can be found. These are areas of wetland where subterranean water spills gloriously to the surface. Here you might catch a glimpse of the elusive and extremely rare dwarf Nile crocodile. The Anedi tiger and the Saharan lion are, unfortunately, both believed now to be extinct. Perhaps good news for the camels, however, who flock to these river canyons to fill up their tanks before journeying back into the desert. Here is Anedi's final surprise. Neolithic paintings adorn many of the rocks, their shape and colour preserved by the dry desert atmosphere. How many thousands of years ago did a culture flourish here? Populated by enough people to develop leisure time in which to express themselves through art. We may never know who these people were, but their voices travel down through the millennia thanks to their priceless but little seen legacy to the world. Yet its remote location is not the only thing which deters visitors. Chad is considered a failed state, an unfortunate place benighted by political corruption and poverty, with the greater part of its 10 million population scraping a subsistence from the land. Tourists are at some risk of robbery and violence if they choose to travel alone and unprotected through this remarkable, beautiful, but potentially perilous country. Yet for all its hazards, the Anedi Plateau is truly a place of wonder. And of course, if you'd like to see it, visit the show notes. The photos are quite spectacular. Certainly an amazing place.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. We also have a Facebook page on which I post links and information about the podcast. And it's at www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or just click on the Facebook link on the show notes. If you're wondering why there's a lot of bird noise in the background for today's podcast, it's due to those beautiful and colourful but extremely noisy creatures called rainbow lorikeets. Two houses over from where I live, there is this very large rainforest plant called a Terilliana, a type of gum, very large, and at the moment it's flowering, so there are hundreds of birds going absolutely silly over the nectar in these flowers. I'd just like to say thank you to a few people who have made contributions to the podcast over the last few days and just say to everyone, your help and support is greatly appreciated. So it's a huge thank you to these people, Alex Baker, Richard Shoemaker, Orville Acra, and a special thank you to Joe and Courtney Vance, David Birch, William Burton, William Bliss, David Loam, Linda Durham, Sean Yarnell, and that's two from you, Sean. Thank you very much. And Low Frequency. Thank you, everyone. Greatly appreciated. And to bring today's podcast to a close, our usual paranormal tale from the creepypasta.com website. This one's entitled Born Dead. And it has been credited to Anton Scheller. On my 16th birthday, just after I had blown out the candles on a fairy cake, My mother told me that I was born dead. I'm so happy that you made it, she said. I pulled the fork out of my mouth. What? Oh, she said, I guess we never told you. If not for Aunt Kira, you wouldn't even have made it through your first day. Aunt Kira, Nurse Kira. My mother's contractions started in her lunch break two months early. She was at the hospital 20 minutes later, and another hour after that, she pushed my head out of her body. Like most babies, I didn't breathe. The doctor gave me a light slap, like for all babies. Another light slap, like for some babies. Then a stronger slap. At that point, my mother started screaming. A thick stream of blood ran out of her lower body. The doctor handed me over to a young nurse who tried another slap, then quickly passed me to a 24-year-old nurse, Nurse Kira. Kira wrapped her mouth around mine and blew air into my nose. 
She used two of her fingers to quickly massage my chest. She paused, blew another gust of air into my lungs and kept massaging over and over again. My mother stopped screaming. They managed to stop her bleeding too. They told Nurse Kira to stop the CPR. They said it was hopeless. The doctor tried to pull her hand away from my small and still chest. When that didn't succeed, he declared me dead. Two days after my 16th birthday, I met Kira again. To me, she had always been Aunt Kira, never Nurse Kira. The world just disappeared, she said. It was like there was only you and me and my whole life seemed to have led to that moment. She took a bite of the fairy cake and smiled. It's strange, but I don't even remember moving my fingers or giving you mouth to mouth. I just wanted to save your life. And in that moment, nothing else mattered, not even my own life. I just knew you would live. Even when everyone told you to stop, Kira nodded. Even then, I knew that you would live and I would have done anything just to make you take that first breath. Thank you. It's okay. I'm happy that I did. Make sure you bring good to the world. Three days after my 16th birthday, I announced to my parents that I would become a nurse. By the time I turned 17, they had convinced me to become a doctor instead. Studying medicine was the most difficult time in my life, or at least the most difficult time that I remember. Before I gave them a tour of the grounds, my parents had never even entered a lecture hall. They had supported me in school, but university was different, and when my trouble with deadlines and stacks of learn this by heart sheets started, they didn't know how to help. Aunt Kira did know. She came and showed me the best books. She taught me the memnonics for the most important bones and muscles. She even taught me how to take proper notes and where to sit in the lecture hall. Not in the first two or three rows, so you don't get picked on, but in the first third of the hall. The ones in the back, Kira said, are either shy or don't want to listen. As a doctor, you shouldn't be shy, and as a smart girl, you should want to listen. It's not cool to sit in the back. It's the seats of those that want to chat and gossip or sleep. It's the seats of those that want to fail, and it's not cool to fail. I would be lying if I said my grades were great, but I never failed an exam and my grades were high enough that when my first placement went well, they allowed me to join the neonatology specialisation. It felt like the right thing to do, the right thing to give back. When I graduated, I had three parents to watch my hat fly. They were my parents, of course, and Aunt Kira sat to the left of my mum with a big smile on her face. Kira also helped me get my first job, in her hospital, in the hospital in which I was born, dead. She showed me the way around and introduced me to the other nurses. Aunt Kira told me how to learn the most and how to handle those wrinkly, small and fragile humans with care. But she also scolded me with her soft voice whenever I handled a newborn too roughly or made decisions that she thought were not ideal. Just for one year I had that pleasure. I wish I would have thanked her more often. The doctor's life is hard. You have to be calm and compassionate to your patients all day. That life doesn't allow you to take rest and think of yourself. 
But most of all, it doesn't give you time to sit back and see all the other people in your life that would need your compassion. I knew that her husband had died long ago, but Aunt Kira never wore a sad face. I also heard the rumours, but with my thoughts on the patients, I quickly discarded those words from my mental stack. Unhappy, miscarried, lonely, can't have children, always just at work. I always asked her how she was and she always said she was fine. A whole year and I didn't listen. She was standing behind me while I was giving advice to a soon-to-be mother. I felt her hand on my shoulder and then she pulled it away. And we even offer a water birth if... The patient turned white. Oh my God, the patient said. Oh my God. A what? Left my mouth before she could answer. I heard the heavy thud behind me. Aunt Kira's arms and legs were twitching then cramped. Her lower jaw was pulled down and her eyes turned inside. Seizure. We gave her muscle relaxants, but her mouth never closed again. Kira was in that bed for a week. There were so many flowers that even the second table didn't suffice. There were always people in her room, holding her hand and saying kind words. Only when I said that I was a doctor and needed privacy, then they would leave and I would sit down and cry with my head on her chest. When she fell, her head had hit the floor, an aneurysm, brain dead. I hadn't paid attention to that hand on my shoulder, to that hand pulling my coat. After a week, her doctor made the decision to pull the plug. Please don't, I said. He looked at her face. I'm sorry, he said, but you know, she's dead already. That afternoon, my parents came, Kira's sister and her two nephews too. One after the other, a slow procession of nurses and doctors went through the room to squeeze her hand or kiss her forehead. All except my parents and her sister and nephews left. I was the one that pulled the plug. There is no sound like that steady, long beep. No sound where you hope so much that it would sound different. A week later, I emptied her locker. Another nurse, one around Kira's age, came into the room while I was folding a blue sweater. The nurse looked around the room, then quickly approached me. She held a file towards me. It had Kira's name on it and a patient number. We shouldn't give this out, she said, but I think you might want it. Why? You will see. That night, with the basket of Kira's possessions on a chair and a glass of sour white wine on the table, I opened that file. There were not many pages of the first years, just her profile and insurance data, a few standard tests. I felt like a stone in my stomach when I saw the pregnancy test. Positive. There were several more lab results, an admission sheet. One word was scribbled in red letters at the top of the page. Miscarriage. My training took over. I looked through the data on the page and didn't find a cause. For nearly half an hour, I read through the sheet and the lab results stapled to the yellow cardboard. All results seemed fine. She'd been admitted in the afternoon with pain and bleeding, but there didn't seem to be a cause. There was an operation report too. They removed her uterus. 
I sank the file on the table and felt tears roll down my cheeks. I had never listened. I had never wondered why she was alone. That's why she had always cared for me so much. She had saved me. She had given life to me. I had been her replacement child. I took the glass and raised it. I would have done anything just to make you take the first breath, she had said. Thank you, I whispered. It was in that moment when my eyes were somewhere on the ceiling and the cold of the glass touched my lips. The page had turned back to the page with the red letters at the top. My eyes moved back to the page. I looked at the large scribbled word with the capital M. My eyes moved down the page. Then I saw the date. My birthday.